Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, Wessel's economic update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Every year at this time, finance ministers and central bankers from all over the world come to Washington for the spring meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. It's a combination of college reunions and cocktail parties, stage formal meetings and communiques, lively panels and quiet economic diplomacy, and lots of corridor conversations about the latest crises. This year, it'll be about Greece, Ukraine, the Middle East. Now, in preparation for these meetings, the scores of economists at the IMF produce voluminous reports. It's like an annual physical exam for the world economy and financial system. The first batch of reports is out, the ones that focus on long-term issues. More will follow in the coming days. Now, you can read them yourselves, or you can skim the handy summaries that the IMF posts online. But in case that doesn't fit into your schedule, here are a few of the high points of this year's checkup. One, the long-run prospects for the world economy, the sustainable rate of economic growth, are gloomier than we thought just a few years ago. Some of this began before the Great Recession and the global financial crisis, but the crisis did lasting damage as well. In what the IMF likes to call advanced economies, the U.S., Europe, Japan, and so on, what's known as the potential growth rate was thought to be about 2.25% in the early 2000s, before the bust. Today, the IMF says, it's a bit more like 1.5%. Now, that sounds small, but small differences in percentage growth rates add up over time. And the slowdown is even more pronounced in China and other emerging markets. So what? Well, one worrisome implication is slower growth will make it much more difficult to reduce the very heavy public and private debt burdens that have accumulated. Two, there's a business investment drought, and that's one reason for the gloomier outlook for growth. Businesses around the world, particularly in the U.S. and other advanced economies, have lots of cash, enjoy rising stock prices, but are stingy about spending it on machinery, equipment, computers, software, and buildings. Private investment has declined an average of 25% since the crisis compared with pre-crisis forecasts. How come? Is it uncertainty over government policies or lack of credit constraining business investment? Or is it simply that business is bad, demand so weak that businesses don't have much reason to invest? Well, the IMF number crunchers have come to a firm conclusion for a change. It's the economy. Weak economic activity is the overriding factor holding back global business investment, they say. What should we do about it? Well, not targeted task breaks or other kinds of ranting and raving, trying to get people to spend more on their investments. Simply pursue policies that quicken the pace of economic growth. And while we're waiting for businesses to spend a little more, the IMF says there's a very strong case for more public infrastructure investment. And three, changes in the way big global banks behave are making the world financial system a bit safer, at least in one respect. The IMF says the world's big banks, particularly the ones in Europe, are pulling back from lending across borders. Instead of making loans from the headquarters to borrowers in other countries, banks increasingly are using separate locally funded subsidiaries or affiliates to make loans in those countries. Now, the IMF says that's a very good idea because lending across borders tends to amplify bad shocks and locally best lending doesn't. So not all the news coming from the annual checkup is bad this year. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Thank you, David. Today's podcast is a special edition about everyone's favorite subject in April, taxes. And my guest today is one of our top experts on tax policy, Bill Gale. He is the co-director of the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, director of the Retirement Security Project, and a senior fellow in economic studies. 
He also holds the R.J. and Francis Fearing Miller Chair in Federal Economic Policy. He was a staff member at the Council of Economic Advisors during the administration of George H.W. Bush, and he is also an avid tennis player. Welcome to the show, Bill, and thanks for taking the time to be here. Thanks very much. Uh, before any of that, of what I just said by way of introduction, was known to me, you were one of my professors at Georgetown Public Policy Program. I looked it up. It was uh, 20 years ago this fall, and I checked my transcript, and I'm relieved to say that I got an A in your class. Uh, so I'm, I'm relieved to hear that. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be a little bit embarrassed. I wouldn't have brought it up anyway. Let's talk about taxes. I think everyone agrees whether you are an individual filer or a business filer, the U.S. tax code is enormously complicated. Why is the tax code so complicated? The complexity of the tax code is an, an interesting subject. It's the one thing that everyone seems to agree on with taxes, that taxes are too complicated. And think about all the other things we don't agree on, how high taxes should be, who should pay them, what we should tax. The one thing everyone agrees on is the tax code is too complicated, and yet every year it gets more complicated. And the reason, I think, is that uh, the complexity of the tax code is always people's second concern. It's always the parades made, never the parade. Uh, people, when they look at a situation where they could get a tax cut with a special rule, uh, they'll take the tax cut even though it's more complicated than not taking the tax cut. And if, if you look at if, – if everybody does that, if everyone goes for their own tax rule or their tax subsidy, uh, then you get a system as a whole uh, that's very complicated with everyone getting special subsidies. Um, having said all that, it, there's an interesting perspective which is that uh, there might actually be a defense of the complexity of the tax code. And that is uh, if we want to do all these things as public policy, the, all these things meaning child subsidies and housing subsidies and investment subsidies, uh, it's probably more efficient to run all those subsidies through one tax form than it is to have people have to file separate forms uh, to get each subsidy. So imagine if we had a really simple tax system, but to get the, the exemption or the deduction, you had to file a form with the exemption agency. To get the EITC, you had to file a form with the EITC agency. To get the mortgage deduction, you had to file a form with the Housing Administration. Uh, that would be enormously complicated, and uh, that would annoy people endlessly. Uh, as, as an example of that, uh, the, the uh, student aid, the FAFSA form, is exactly like that in that, that you have to fill out all your income tax information basically and then add additional information. And people object strenuously to that and all the proposals are to simplify and streamline. So in a way, what we have done in the system is streamline it and we've taken all these subsidies and run them through the tax code. There are all sorts of problems with that, like whether the IRS can administer all those things, uh, especially with the lower, lower budget that it has now. But it is efficient in this one way uh, that it stops people from having to file dozens of different forms. That's that's really interesting, and um, I hadn't thought of that. And in fact, I should just point out, and I want to give a shout-out to my wife. I haven't thought about the complexity in my personal life too much because my wife files our taxes. So thank you, Paula, for doing that. But uh, back to uh, this question of individual tax deductions. People love their tax deductions, and when we talk about reforming or simplifying the tax code, it seems like we're always saying, 
well, yeah, but we're not going to get rid of the mortgage interest deduction. We won't get rid of the charitable deduction or some of the really big ones, right? If people did want to simplify the tax code, they would still have to contend with those individual deductions that people like so much, right? Right. There are scores and scores of uh, individual provisions that that uh, provide either deductions or credits or allowances or subsidies in, in, in some other way. I've always wanted to do the following experiment, which I ask people, how much more would you pay in taxes to make your taxes extremely simple? And most people uh, that I've asked about this informally, the answer is not much. And that gives you a sense of why the system is complicated. In economics, if you value something, you're willing to give up something in order to get it. And people talk about the, the fact that they'd rather have a simple system, but people aren't willing to give up much to get it. And so uh, we end up with the complicated system that, that we have. Now, uh, we, we see inscribed over the, the doorway of the IRS building in Washington a quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., taxes are the price we pay for a civilized society. Uh, but generally, everyone says we hate paying taxes. We hate the IRS. We want to abolish the IRS, some presidential candidates have been saying. Why do you think there is so much anger or, or disaffection with paying taxes with the IRS in general? Anger at the IRS for the complexity of the tax system is misplaced. The IRS does not legislate the tax code. Congress does. And if the tax code is complicated, that is Congress's fault. Uh, the IRS administers the tax system. The IRS uh, would love to have a simpler tax system uh, because it would make it easier for them to administer the system. But they are, they are not the ones that are responsible uh, for the complexity, though. Now, uh, let's move on to tax reform. You've written a lot about tax reform over the years. It seems like it's a, a perennial topic for uh, analysts and, and members of Congress as well. And you recently wrote uh, on a proposal by Senators Rubio and Lee. Last year, you wrote about um, former Representative Dave Camp's proposals. Uh, but you've also called out in some of your writings the idea of magical thinking on tax reform. Can you talk about what what does tax reform mean to you? Uh, tax reform is in the mind of the beholder, largely. Uh, everyone thinks their proposal is tax reform. Generally, economists mean broadening the base, that is eliminating, reducing, curtailing, deductions, exemptions, etc., and using the revenues that are generated to reduce rates. So the idea behind tax reform, when most economists talk about it, is a broader base and lower rates. And uh, that's the sort of the canonical view about tax reform. I think uh, it's become sort of this mythical thing that congressmen like to talk about. Uh, because the tax system is such a mess, everyone is in favor of, quote, tax reform, unquote. No one's in favor of the system the way it is. But what people mean by that generally can, you know, runs the gamut from basically from raising taxes on high-income households to lowering taxes on high-income households. Uh, so essentially what I mean is people, people mean all sorts of different things when they say they're against the current tax system and they're for tax reform. The level of agreement kind of dissipates very rapidly once, once we drill a little deeper than just the words tax reform. Now, some 
tax reform proponents or proponents of a certain kind of tax reform like to say that uh, tax reform is good for economic growth. Is that true? Does it have a beneficial effect on the economy? Well, I think the, the short answer is it depends on what the reform is. Uh, my general sense from reading the literature and studying the issue is that reforms that are on the scale of what what can be discussed in the political arena uh, would have uh, very small effects on economic growth. And if you look, for example, at the major European countries, they've grown at exactly the same rate that we have over the last 40 years despite having higher tax rates and uh, higher tax revenues than we have. Uh, if you look at the U.S., we grew about as fast in the pre-World War I period when we didn't have any income taxes uh, as we have in the post-World War II period uh, when we've had, you know, quote-unquote high income taxes, high corporate rates, uh, social security taxes, et cetera. If you look across countries over a 20, 30-year period, the ones that have cut their top tax rate the most uh, did not grow any faster than the ones that cut their top tax rates the least so I think there's an enormous amount of rhetoric about tax reform and how much it'll help growth, but there's very little solid evidence to support a significant change in the growth rate. Okay. There's a couple of very popular um, concepts out there uh, that people have heard about a lot uh, that describe a certain approach to tax reform. Two of them are flat tax. Uh, and a consumption tax, which I think is also called a VAT, value-added tax. What, what do you uh, what do you say about those concepts? There's a lot to say about that topic. The uh, old debate in the 90s was about replacing the income tax with a consumption tax, actually replacing the income and the corporate tax with a consumption tax. Uh, the newer debate in light of the fiscal problems of the last several years has been about adding a consumption tax as a supplement to the existing uh, revenue sources. Uh, the value-added tax is the most common type of consumption tax around the world. Uh, more than 150 countries have a value-added tax. Uh, we're the only major, major economy that does not have a value-added tax. The flat tax, as it is understood, not just a flat tax, but the flat tax, is actually a value-added tax that's cut into two parts and uh, wages are taxed at the individual level and all other parts of value added are taxed at the business level. And it's meant, the reason they split the VAT into two parts is that they wanted to replicate the effects of a consumption tax, but they wanted it to look like an income tax and a corporate tax because they wanted to replace the income tax and the corporate tax. So it's very explicitly, uh, it's the people who came up with the idea of flat tax very explicitly chose to split it in two parts, split the VAT into two parts, so that it would look like uh, they were replacing both parts of the of the system. And is there merit to the charge that some level against those kinds of taxes that they're regressive, that they disproportionately affect lower income people? With no uh, other adjustments or supplementary policies, consumption tax would be regressive, as is usually understood, meaning that it would take away a higher percentage of the income of low-income households than of the income of high-income households. Uh, that's pretty easily addressed by uh, providing exemptions or credits at the low end 
of the income scale. So, for example, you could exempt uh, the first ten or fifteen thousand dollars of each person's consumption. So, a family of four would have the first forty or sixty thousand dollars exempted. So they would pay no value-added tax, and only after you earn more than that would you start paying the tax on on your consumption. So there, the charge against the pure value-added tax is right, but uh, there are ways of adjusting it or adding supplementary policies that offset that effect. Let's uh, let's just dip our toe very gently into presidential politics, and you don't need to comment necessarily on the rhetoric. Uh, but we have heard both uh, Ted Cruz and Rand Paul, both senators, say they would abolish the IRS. Um, you can speak to that if you want, but I'm, I'm going to connect that to the event that the Tax Policy Center just had at Brookings featuring IRS Commissioner John Koskinen. And the subject was the effect of IRS budget cuts on the ability of the agency to carry out its mission of uh, tax enforcement and also customer service to the, to the American taxpayer. Can you uh, kind of relate your thoughts on what the commissioner said here at Brookings? And, and if you want to tie it back to this larger notion of continuing to cut the IRS down to, uh, to bare bones or as, as uh, uh, drowner in a bathtub, as uh, Grover Nordquist said, I think. Uh, so we need some sort of collection agency, whether we want to – quote, abolish the IRS, unquote, and come up with a new agency that does the same thing but has a different name, uh, you know, that, that seems like, like uh, a distinction without a difference. But we're not going to abolish a tax collection agency. That's somebody has to enforce the tax system. It would be like saying we're going to abolish the police force and, and we're just going to expect everyone to voluntarily obey all of the laws. The commissioner of the IRS made, I thought, a compelling case that the IRS cuts over the last several years are threatening to damage the IRS's ability to provide taxpayer service, uh, to update its information technology system, and to audit and enforce uh, the tax system and uh, ensure, he called it tax cuts for tax cheats. And that's what it amounts to. As the IRS has its resources restricted, uh, it's harder to audit. People know it's harder to audit. They're going to be more aggressive in what they report, how they, how they report their income and their deductions. And uh, I just think it undermines kind of the basic notion of fairness in the system. You have to understand virtually all wage income is in effect audited because the employer withholds tax and sends it to the government. And so the government knows how much uh, you're making in wages unless you're self-employed. The places in the system where uh, there's not that third-party reporting include things like capital gains and small business income and partnerships, stuff like that. And the audit, the, the, um, the evasion rates in those type of income uh, have been shown to be very high. And so when we're talking about uh, restricting the IRS's ability to audit, we're basically giving, implicitly, we're giving tax cuts to those groups. And uh, it, it hurts everyone. It not only hurts the integrity and fairness of the system, uh, it means that everyone else, you know, will have to pay more eventually because 
some people are not paying their fair share. So I think it's really important. Uh, you can argue about whether you want lower taxes or higher taxes. Uh, but I don't think there should be an argument about whether we want an effective enforcement agency. It's just a good government thing. And frankly, the worry is that those some of those people who want lower taxes are essentially trying to trying to achieve that by attacking the IRS's ability to enforce the tax system. Well, I think we'll leave it on that note. That was uh, that was a very compelling way to finish the, the this conversation about taxes. Uh, thanks, Bill, for your time today. Thank you very much. Uh, you can find more about Bill Gale on the Brookings website, brookings.edu, uh, or also visit the Tax Policy Center, taxpolicycenter.org. If you have any questions for Bill or any previous guests of the show, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu, and I'll try to get them answered in upcoming episodes. This podcast is made possible by the production skills of Zach Colzer, the art design of Jessica Pavone, and web support from Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan.